Well, do turn to Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, as we continue to uncover the treasures that are found in this wonderful Gospel. We're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, this shocking conclusion to our last time in Mark, where we discovered that the Pharisees, the elite, highly respected Pharisees, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, these were the political people in league with the Romans, against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, that's south of Judea, towards the Sinai Desert, and from beyond the Jordan, that's east of the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon, that's up north. When the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he'd healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed, literally he made 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which is rocky, if you want the English translation. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon. Well, the Canaanian, it could mean Simon the Zealot, the nationalist, the ultra-nationalist. And Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, the family are about 20 miles away, so it seems that as they travel, this is what happens. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, this is a delegation, were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. 
then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Our Father, your word tells us that the unfolding of your word brings light. And we pray that you would help us to unfold your word this morning well. And that your light and the light of our Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, might shine into the hearts and minds of each one of us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the world is full of conflict. And even in our lives, it's impossible to avoid conflict from time to time. I wonder how you handle conflict when you face it. They say, don't they, that it's fight or flight are the two main responses. Well, I don't know if you see it as simply as that. And if so, which are you? Do you, do you stand and fight or do you, do you run from it? You're a coward like me. And in situations of conflict, do you ever see good coming out of them, that, that there is a positive outcome, even from a conflictual situation? Very often that is the case if we discern what is going on and pray for wisdom. Mark makes very clear to us that Jesus faced powerful opposition from very early on in his ministry, his public ministry. And we're going to be looking at two questions this morning. One is, how did Jesus handle the opposition? And then, secondly, what positives came out of the conflict? How did Jesus then handle the opposition he faced? Which is various, as we shall see. And the answer is, he resisted it with a firm resistance. As we saw in verse 6 of chapter 3, the opposition was total. There was a conspiracy to eliminate him. And Jesus initially, verse 7, withdraws with his disciples to the sea, which I think means he went up around the, the, the coast of the Sea of Galilee to a more deserted place away from Capernaum, where he was based. And Mark records four kinds of opposition in verses 7 to 32, which Jesus meets in each case with firm resistance. Varied opposition. The first opposition, which is slightly strange when I say it in terms of opposition, but I bear with me is the great crowd in verses 7 to 10. The great crowd. There it is in verse 7. A great 
crowd followed Jesus from all, all over the place. They'd come a long way, some of them. Now you think, well, hang on a minute. Well, how come this is opposition? Isn't drawing a great crowd a really positive thing? And of course, at one level, it shows that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. As John the Baptist had said, if you compare verses, those verses uh, in 7 and 8 in chapter 3 with, with John's pulling power in chapter 1, verse 5, he just managed to get all the country of Judea and Jerusalem to go to him. Jesus has a, a wider appeal, and people come from further afield to hear him. And it's not surprising when you look at chapter 3, verse 8, that they had heard, the great crowd heard all that he was doing. That's why they came to him. And of course, what was he doing? Well, he wasn't just preaching, he was healing. And so we see in verse 10 that he'd healed many. So all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. If only they could touch him, they'd be healed. That was what they thought. And they were probably right. There are certainly incidences of that in the Gospels where just a touch of Jesus physically and you were healed instantly. But they mobbed him so much that there was the danger he would be crushed, end of verse 9. So the disciples got a boat ready, a kind of uh, escape plan that would whisk him out of danger. If he was pushed back into the lake by the crowd mobbing him, he could just get into the boat and, and make his escape. Now, I'm sure if you interviewed the crowd and said, what brings you here and, and, and what's your thinking about Jesus? I'm sure they'd have all said, oh, we think he's fantastic. That's why we're here. We've come to get healed by him. Because it was all who had diseases, verse 10, who were pressing around him to touch him. And yet, ask yourself this. Did, did Jesus milk the adulation and book a bigger venue for the next gig? No. Verse 13, he disappeared up a mountain and called a small team of 12 from those who came to him, whom he'd called and selected. It's strange, isn't it? Because you'd think that Jesus would be pleased with the crowd, the great crowd. I mean, if, if this morning you could not get a seat and every single seat was filled up in the balcony down here, and you went home and you said, well, so it's, I don't know what happened this morning, but the place was absolutely jam-packed. I think you'd view that positively, wouldn't you? Rather than say, well, maybe you wouldn't. Maybe your favorite seat was taken. But um, generally speaking, I think most of us would think, well, that's wonderful that there was such a great crowd. But remember, Jesus had a clear priority. When the crowd was after him in chapter 1, verse 37 and 38, after a big day of healing... He's off. And when they go and say, but they're all waiting for you, he says, no, let's go to the next town so that I may preach there also, 138. For that is why I came. I came to spread the message, not to heal the sick at this stage. That's not my priority. I came to preach the message of good news and to defeat Satan. And what is happening here is that the great crowds are sidetracking or in danger of sidetracking the mission of Jesus again. They're not for him. They're actually against him. <coughs> Alistair Begg, who was with us a couple of weeks ago, who's a pastor of a, of a church in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, was saying that he reckons he could triple the congregation if he hitched his wagon to a particular political party in the USA. It's temptation, I'm sure. But great crowds are not always a sign of spiritual health. 
And when the motive is physical healing or politics rather than growth in repentance and faith and hope and love, it's not something that's for Jesus, against him. So Jesus leaves the crowd behind and he moves on. Now, just before he moves on, we see the second source of opposition very briefly is the pure demonic, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, these are the evil spirits, the, the demons by another name, they fell down before him. They were pos occupying individual human lives who they used their bodies to fall down and they cried out, you're the son of God. And Jesus' response is to strictly order them not to make him known. He's not going to accept their testimony. They are firmly resisted, even though they cannot help falling down before his majesty and crying out and revealing who he is. But he shuts them up, as he always does in the face of evil. He will oppose it absolutely. So the great crowds, the pure demonic, third source of opposition that Jesus resists is the religious establishment, verses 22 to 30. And as you look at verse 22, it seems that this is a, an official delegation that's come down from Jerusalem to begin the destroy Jesus agenda. These are people, remember, who are far more concerned with power than with truth. And Jesus threatens their position of power. And they make this astonishing assertion. Verse 22, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, by the devil. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They couldn't deny the power, but they claimed that the source of power is evil and not good. And Jesus calls them to him, verse 23, and they come. And he said to them in parables, or we might say simple illustrations, he points out the absurdity of their allegations. How, verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan. That would be a path of total self-destruction. It makes no sense at all. It's self-contradictory. It's illogical. Imagine someone said to you that, that President Putin was actually a puppet of the Ukrainian government. And all the soldiers fighting on the Russian side in the war in Ukraine are in fact Ukrainians dressed in military, Russian military uniform. I mean, that, that's mad. I mean, why would that happen? That, that would be, Ukraine would just be destroying itself if that were true. And then in, Jesus, in, in verse 27, Jesus uses the illustration of robbing the house of a strong man. You've got a big house, a very powerful individual. The only way to make sure that you get their stuff is to tie them up first then you can take their stuff. And the implication seems to be that Jesus is saying, the devil is like the strong man, and I am like the one who has tied him up. And I can now plunder his house. I can take his stuff. And his goods are people that he has occupied. And I'm setting free those he's captured. And that, in a sense, is, is the wonderful ministry that Jesus did on earth to set people free from the grip of the enemy, the evil one. <coughs> but he hasn't finished with them yet, verses 28 to 30, which is really sobering. 
Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you, persi if you persist in your perverse inversion of the truth, you, the religious establishment, it is an eternal sin. In other words, a sin with eternal consequences. Now, I'm sure you're aware that these verses, 28 to 30, have often troubled Christians over the centuries as they have searched their hearts and thought, oh, what have I done? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Am I in a position where I shall never be forgiven? Well, let me reassure you that if you are concerned that you have committed this sin or are committing it right now, you have not. Now, how can I be so confident? Well, if you had committed the sin or were committing it, you would be supremely unconcerned about it. Because that's the whole point. It's a hardness of heart. It's actually, as verse 30 puts it, Mark very helpfully explaining why Jesus says this. It's because these scribes, these scripture teachers who'd come down from Jerusalem, they were saying, Jesus is possessed by the devil. It's as blunt and as awful as that. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not just sinning, as it were. It is a position of deliberately and persistently maintaining that the power of Jesus comes from the evil one, not the good God. I doubt very much that is your view. But if it is, beware. It's a very dangerous view to hold. But you can rest assured that, that God has never refused to forgive anyone who has asked him for forgiveness. So Jesus resists the great crowds, the pure demonic, the religious establishment. And then fourthly, the fourth opposition is a surprising kind of opposition. It is close family. Verse 20. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. That's he and his band of disciples. And when his family, Jesus' family, heard it, they went out to seize him, but they were saying he's out of his mind. When his close family heard that the mobbing of the crowds meant he wasn't eating, they decided to come to section him under the Mental Health Act, as we might put it. Why? Verse 21, he's out of his mind. He's lost it. He's gone crazy. Well, they're in for a shock as we shall see in verses 31 following. And it's very interesting how Mark constructs this. Do you see how he, he tells the story of the family basically saying Jesus has lost his mind? And then he cuts to the encounter with the scribes who accuse him of being in league with the devil, indeed possessed by the devil. And then it cuts back again to the family. Now, why does Jesus do, it's Mark rather, do this? Well, I, I probably because that's how it happened, but why does he record it in this way and organize it? I think it's because he's trying to say something to us. He's trying to say something about the close family's attempted interference with Jesus. He's, he's saying that 
you need to realize that this is a sandwich, that there are the family come, the family encounter Jesus. In between, the filling of the sandwich is this bitter religious enemies tackling Jesus. And so there's this bitter taste, if you like, in the mouth as we read the story of the close family's interference. And it's as if Mark is saying, do you realize that the close family's interference with Jesus is really similar to what the religious enemies, the, the religious establishment were about. It's in the same category as outright deliberate opposition to Jesus. Now you, you may say, well, how does that apply? I mean, can you think of an example? Well, yes, family members can sometimes interfere with the Christian service of other family members. I know one fine young person who sensed some years ago, a call to serve God overseas with the outstanding musical gifts that they had been given. Was the family happy? The family were all in the church? Well, the mother, who was a church member, opposed the decision vehemently. She didn't quite say that her child was mad, but she did say it was a complete waste of their talents. Those were her words a complete waste of her life, the daughter's life. Well, thank God that woman decided to follow God's call, not her mother's opinion. But her mother was opposing God at that point, in my view. It's exactly this kind of thing, close family resisting God. Well, how does Jesus handle this opposition? With firm resistance. What about a positive outcome? Is there anything positive that comes out of this series of conflicts? And the answer, the answer is yes. There comes out of this a reshaped people of God. God's people are being reshaped into a brand new family, a blended family. Two aspects to observe. First, Jesus establishes the new Israel, verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Why 12? Why not 5 or 7 or 10 or any number you care to choose? Well, the implication is that this is the new Israel. In place of the 12 tribes are now the 12 apostles. I put a reference up there on the screen of Luke 22, which I think makes it clearer. We won't look at it now for time. But take a note if you want to follow that up, Luke 22, 28 to 30. And when you note that this is Jesus' call, who are the 12? Verse 13, he, he called to him those whom he desired. It was his choice. And they came to him. It was his appointment. He appointed the twelve. The church is not self-selected. There's a sense in which we, if we're part of this church or another church, if we're visiting, it, it wasn't our choice. Yes, it was at one level, but fundamentally, ultimately, it wasn't our choice to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. That was his choice. He selects his people. 
And the people he selects like this 12 are a very mixed bunch in terms of personalities. Isn't it fascinating in verse 17? James and the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Why did he do that? Well, do you remember that incident where that Samaritan village that they passed through rejected Jesus and wouldn't let him go through the village? What did they say to Jesus? Shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Sons of thunder. Well, I don't think all of the disciples were like that, all the apostles, rather. Not everyone was a son of thunder. Very different personalities, very different preferences. If the reading is correct that it's Simon the Zealot, uh, the nationalist, here we have a collaborator chosen, Matthew the tax collector, totally in league with the Romans, perfectly happy with their occupation. I'll make a lot of money out of this, thank you very much. That was his previous attitude. And this ultra-nationalist, Simon the Zealot, who was probably tempted to take up arms against the Romans. I bet there were some very interesting discussions over dinner between those two. But what do they have in common? Not their political views. What they have in common is verse 14. Jesus appointed 12 so that they might be with Jesus and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. To be with Jesus. What, just to kind of hang out with him? Well, I think it's more than that implied. As you go on through Mark, you discover that of the nine times that the, that the disciples address Jesus and give him a title, or a, they, seven out of those nine, they call him teacher. The other two are rabbi, which is very similar. So they saw him as their teacher. They were with him as those being taught by Jesus. And they weren't just taught by him, they were sent by him to continue his mission, to announce the message and resist the evil one. Now, these apostles, the 12 who were named apostles, verse 14, they have a unique task as first-hand witnesses of Jesus. They're the foundation of the, the new reshaped Israel. We are built on that foundation. It's the 12 apostles who lie at the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ through the centuries. And the reason we're here today is because of them and the Lord Jesus' choice of them. A reshaped people of God, the new Israel, but also the second aspect to note in the last section, verses 31 to 35, is that Jesus doesn't just reshape the people of God as the new Israel, but as the true family of God. Now here, that episode which began in 2021 with the, clo with the close family hearing about Jesus' predicament and his not being able to eat, and his mother, no doubt, deeply concerned about her son not eating properly. He's left home, and guess what? He's not eating properly. Not the first mother or the last to think that. So they, they come to the conclusion that he's out of his mind and he needs to be taken hold of by the people in white coats. Now here we reach the climax of that episode. After the break, we cut to the scribes who've come down from Jerusalem. We, we see the bitter um, accusation that Jesus is possessed by the devil rebutted. And then we cut back 
Verse 31, to Jesus' mother and brothers coming and standing outside. This seems to be outside the home, the house, maybe a house in Capernaum. They sent him and called him out. And we read in verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And you see how the way Mark tells it, he repeats that word outside. Your mother and brothers are outside. They're not inside, they're outside. Close family, outsiders. And Jesus' response, verse 33, he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Almost seems rude, doesn't it? And yet we know Jesus was never rude. Indeed, his words at the cross, do you remember how as he's hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, he sees his mother there, he sees the apostle John. What does he say? John, your mother, please take care of my mother now, now that I'm departing. Oh, he cared about his mother, don't, don't make no mistake about it. And as for his brothers, well, his brother James became the leader of the Jerusalem church years later. No, Jesus is testing them, he's making clear that this biological, the family background, that connection is not the thing that makes you part of the true family of God, nor your theological credentials. That was clear from the scribes. They knew the scriptures better than anyone, but that didn't make them part of the true family of God. What makes you part of the true family of God? And it's the same today. What is it? We'll look at verse 32 again. A crowd, this is a different crowd, a much smaller crowd, was sitting around him. Verse 34, Jesus looking about at those who sat around him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers and sisters. What is a Christian? A Christian essentially is someone who sits around Jesus, who comes and listens to him, who wants to be taught by him, who knows him through the Spirit's work and the gospel message, who's heard about Jesus, who accepts it, who's not going to say his power comes from the evil one, but rather, sorry, his power comes from the good God. And as Jesus goes on to say, verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And he adds that word sister to make sure that there's no doubt about it. There's no gender barrier here. Whoever does the will of God. They say, what is the will of God then? Well, we've been reading Mark. What has he told us so far? Go back to chapter 1, verse 15. Verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the great news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the great news. The will of God is that we do just that, that we change our minds and our direction in life, that we put our trust in this message that we've heard from Jesus about the kingdom of God being at hand, about his rule, his reign coming 
And he's returning one day to establish that reign in its fullness. But we can become subjects of the kingdom now. We can swear allegiance to him. We can join his family. And if anyone will repent and believe the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, they are welcomed into the real family of God. Whatever your color, your gender, your politics, your abilities, you are welcome. Whatever your race, whatever your language. Now, I don't know what your human family is like. Maybe it's wonderful. Maybe it's awful. I guess for most of us, it's probably somewhere in between. It has its moments, good and bad. Well, I hope there's some good in your family that you're grateful for, and it's not all bad. But let me assure you that here is a family, the true family of God, where it's going to get better and better, and one day it's going to be perfect. The perfect family. Now, at the moment, it's not quite perfect because it's got people like you and me in it who are sinners but forgiven sinners. But we mess up from time to time and we hurt one another. But thank the Lord there is forgiveness. Well, my friends, as we finish, let me ask you, are you part of that family, that eternal family? Because whoever you are, whatever you've done, you are so welcome. If only you will turn and put your trust in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus offers you a fresh start, even today. Would you take it? End your opposition. Come to him today. Don't leave it another day. And if you know him already, if you're sitting there, and I guess most of us would be in this bracket, that, that we say, well, by the grace of God, I am a brother or sister of Jesus. And that reading from Hebrews that we had earlier has that remarkable way where Jesus is not ashamed to call people like us my brother, my sister. Will you rejoice afresh that you are a member of the true family of God? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that all opposition to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be resisted by him and will one day be eliminated. We pray that we might not be people who resist him and oppose him. But that if we're still in opposition, please, Lord, bring us round, turn us round. <clears throat> 